The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Acts chapter 25. When we last left off, Paul stood trial before Felix, who was the the governor in Judea. Felix was an ex-slave who was put in power by Rome in Judea. Um, and, And Felix was really trying to placate the, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem by leaving Paul in lockdown uh, during that time. Now, he was kind of hoping that Paul would give him um, a bribe, that he would maybe pay him off, because Felix was known to take bribes pretty regularly. And it's one of the things that ultimately led to his demise and his removal from power in Judea. Um, but, but he left Paul in prison. And, and the, the last scripture, in verse 27 of chapter 24, tells us that for two years, Paul had been in prison. And, and then eventually, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, a new ruler who was brought in by Rome. So uh, occasionally, Felix would bring Paul into the tribunal, into the court, and, and in the court... Uh, Felix would, would reach out to Paul and say, hey, uh, you know, tell me more about this Christianity. What he, what he was really hoping for was, was that Paul would grease his palms so that he, he would let him go. Uh, and, and Paul was in quarantine for two years in Caesarea Maritima. Uh, and Paul's time under quarantine was, was not wasted. And I, now, I was thinking about this. This is interesting. Here's Paul in lockdown. He's under quarantine. He cannot leave by decree of the government. Sound familiar? How's he respond? Does he launch a revolt? No. Does he shake his fist at the air and say, Why is the devil hindering me? No. That's not it. He embraces this limitation. You know, in the year 1675 in Bedford, England, the famous Puritan preacher and writer John Bunyan was arrested for preaching publicly uh, without a license, and he was jailed for six months. Previously to that six-month sent that he, sent, he, he spent in prison, uh, he had been jailed for 12 years, during which time he, he wrote many books and pamphlets, And so rather than seeing this new imprisonment as a great tragedy, he took an optimistic view of it. It, it, It's reported that he said, I have been away from my writing too long. Maybe this is not so much a prison as an office from which I can reach the world with Christ's message. Now whether or not these were Bunyan's precise words, it was during that six-month stint that he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, one of the, the greatest Christian works of, of literature in, in history. One of the most famous books ever written in the English language. And, and, and Paul, like John Bunyan, takes the same approach. He, he says, man, my time here is not going to be wasted. Paul used the limitations that he was placed under as an opportunity. Those limitations ended up being one of the greatest gifts to the church in all of history. 
Because it was during this time, it was during quarantine in Caesarea Maritima and then later on in Rome when he was under, under quarantine there that he would write the prison epistles. He would write Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians and, and the wonderful small book of Philemon during his time in prison. And because of Paul's willingness to see these limitations as an opportunity, he made great investment into the church. Investment that you and I benefit from today. Those books in the New Testament solidify for us so much doctrine. Here's, here's, here's a list of a few. From prison, Paul wrote about the deity of Christ. He refuted ritualism and Jewish legalism. He refuted early heresy. He talked about forgiveness and defined what that looked like. He, he addressed slavery and grace and predestination and God's design for family and God's design for work. He talked about spiritual warfare. He taught about prayer. He taught about social equality in the kingdom of God and racial equality in the kingdom of God. He talked about honor for authority. And the list goes on and on. And we are the direct recipients of those doctrines because he took on the limitations that God had brought into his life and he embraced them as an opportunity. As an opportunity. You see, Paul used prison to continue to reach out, to disciple people, to preach the gospel to prison guards, to write, to reflect on issues that were facing the church and to think very carefully and very biblically about them. He took the opportunity to pray. In every single one of those epistles, he talks to those churches. He says, I've been praying for you. This is what I've been praying. He reflected on the issues facing the church and prayed. And he took the time to reach out and to relate to the oppressed. One of the people that he met was a fellow prisoner named Onesimus, who was a former slave, who came to the Lord under Paul's authority. And, and Paul wrote to his owner and talked about equality in the kingdom of God. What a beautiful, beautiful way to look at those limitations. And I, I wonder, this is just me wondering out loud, I wonder what... God might be doing in our present limitations. I wonder, uh, I wonder what God might be doing through our present circumstances. Of course, I'm talking about uh, the fact that the church cannot gather in larger groups than 250. I, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about social settings that involve no handshakes or hugs. Those are limitations for sure. But, but what about the other limitations in our lives? Like a stage of life where, where you're just exhausted. There's a lot of work, a lot of effort uh, going out. Or um, when you don't get the promotion. Or when physical weakness hinders your ability to pursue the life that you wished. Or, or when graduation and your senior year wasn't what you thought it should be. Or, or, or when later on in the year, if, if your candidate doesn't win. I wonder what God might be doing in those limitations. Listen, the world will always be in this constant state of transition and fluctuation, but God's work and his goal and his effort to redeem it is always on track. He's still working. And he doesn't work around the limitations of life. Folks, he works through them. He works through them. Wow. 
Paul has been busy while he's in quarantine. And now there is a change in leadership. Felix is ousted, and now Portius Festus has been in, installed by Rome to take the place of Felix. Now, a, upon arriving to Caesarea Maritima, uh, Felix shows up, he hangs out for a few days, and we pick up the story here in verse 1 of chapter 25. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Now, that's about 75 miles of a journey. Now, you have to remember, he just took a ship all the way from Rome, all the way back to Caesarea Maritima. And when he gets there, he only hangs out for three days. He just recuperates for three days. He hits the ground running, makes the 75-mile additional journey to go to Jerusalem. Now, why did he do that? Well, because he needs to get to know the players in this in this place that he has been um, ordered to rule and have authority over. He needs to become familiar with the key players in this Roman territory. And so, verse 2, And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him. Now, this is funny to me. It's been two years' time. Paul is in a different city. He's not even in Jerusalem. And these guys are just still stewing on, on Paul's existence. They just want him wiped out from the face of the earth. So the very first issue that they bring up is like, we want you to kill Paul. That's the issue. We want, it, we want you to deal with Paul. And if you're not going to do him, then bring him down here to Jerusalem. So they urged him, verse 3, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Now, we'll pause here for just a, a real brief moment. And, and I want to acknowledge something. Notice here that biblical information did not help these guys to live more righteously. Do you notice that? I mean, who knew the Old Testament better than these guys? They're, they're the rulers of Israel. They had all the information that they needed. But it did not cause them to live in a way that was honoring to God. You see, religion without relationship is corrupting. Religion without relationship is corrupting. Kent Hughes wrote this. He said this. We say... Even if a person is, isn't really born again, even if she or he doesn't really trust God, isn't it at least better to be religious than non-religious? That is not necessarily the case. It can be, but religion can also be very corrupting. This is because the life of God is not actually present in the worshiper. Then his or her religion can become a mere veneer hypocrisy and can be used as, as an excuse for doing what is obviously evil history teaches us that some of the worst things that have ever been done have been done by people who claim that they were doing the will of God that is by religious people and, and, and this, is, this is the reality now, now I want to say this for our, our church because I think that there is a danger we, we talk about theology a lot we talk about uh, facts and information and having right theology and all of that is good but listen if you don't have the life of Christ abiding in you that actually can be poison for your soul 
Because you can justify a lot of evil in the name of God if you're not being directed, if you are not surrendered to the Holy Spirit in your life, if you don't have relationship with God. A lot of evil can be done in God's name. Look at history. You don't have to look very far back to see it. So under the banner of zeal for God, the Pharisees plot murder. They lie about Paul and they bear false witness. They're they're breaking at least two of the big ten, right? Thou shalt not kill, right? And thou shalt not bear false witness. They're doing both of those right off the bat, but they have no conviction about that whatsoever. So they're plotting to kill Paul. Verse 4, Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. And after he stayed with them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal. That word tribunal, again, is bima, or the bima seat, the, the place of judgment. This was, this was the place where Roman law was decreed. Now, Paul picks up on this idea in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, when he says that we will all stand before the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. And, and the people throughout the Roman Empire knew what that meant. All judgments there represented the kingdom, and they were final. They were the final word. Whatever happened there was the final say. And so Paul is brought before the Bema seat of Rome. And when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around and bringing many serious charges against him that they could not prove. And Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Now check this out. But Festus, Wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Now, Festus here is the new kid on the block. And he shows up. The last guy who got ousted was ousted because he couldn't keep control of Judea. They were always rioting. There was all these problems. There was lots of corruption. And so he was ousted. Festus is supposed to come fix everything. When he shows up, day four... He's in Jerusalem. He's immersed right in to this controversy. So Festus thinks, okay, well, maybe I can get Paul to go down to Jerusalem. That's going to make the Jews happy. That's going to make these religious leaders happy. If he dies on the way, eh, oh well, right? At least people will be happy. They'll have what they want. And this problem goes away and I can... I can just keep doing what I need to do to, to lock things down here. Uh, and so he wishes to do the Jews a favor. Now, Paul is savvy to this. He understands the politics of what, I, of what is happening. And, and he says, I'm, I'm standing, verse 10, before Caesar's tribunal, before the bema seat of Caesar. Right now, at this moment, where I ought to be tried, not carried back to Jerusalem. To the Jews, I've I've, I've done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. (laughs) He just calls them out. He's like, "You, you know 
I haven't done anything that means that I should go back to Jerusalem and put my head on the chopping block. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. And then he says these words, I appeal to Caesar. This was the right of every Roman citizen in order to protect their rights or to to protect justice in their lives. They had the right always to appeal to the highest court of the land to stand before Caesar. At this time, it was Caesar Nero. And so Paul says, I appeal to Caesar because I'm not going to get justice here. That's obvious to me. Now at that point, once somebody utters those words, there is nothing else to say. Their rights are protected, they are secured, and they are given the right to a trial to stand before Caesar. So then Festus, when he conferred with his council, answered and said, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Festus says, all right, if that's the way you want to do things, then uh, there's nothing I can say here. I'm here by decree of Caesar. I'm here at the, at the command of Caesar. And so if you want to go there, that's where you're going to go. So I want you to see two things from this last passage. First of all, in verses 1 through 7, I want you to see the abuse of religious power. We see these, these characters, the members of the Sanhedrin, the, the, the Council of Jerusalem, and they are willing to do all kinds of evil as though they are doing the will of God. The Sanhedrin did not lack information. They lacked spiritual formation. They were not being shaped by God in them. They did not lack information. This is key. They did not lack information. They lacked spiritual formation. Listen, if devotional times for us as God's people are just about checking a box, and we aren't actually devoting ourselves to Christ, what is the point? If gathered times like this are just about attendance, and they're not about actually loving the living God, then how are we different than the pagans? If our prayers are offered in repetition, whether that's around the dinner table or first thing in the morning, and there is no desire to hear from God and to be, to be attached to Him, to, to sort of like an umbilical cord, obtain life from Him, to abide, then our prayers are meaningless. They mean nothing. The the information and the practices without the life of God are fruitless. That's the truth. See, for the Pharisees, their knowledge was actually a tool to wield influence and power rather than to create life for themselves. And I just want to encourage us. Maybe maybe it's been a season where, where you have not slowed down in your own heart. To just pause and really take in the goodness of God. Maybe, maybe you, can, you can track that to something specific in your life. Like for me, I know what it is. It's my smartphone. I have no doubts about that whatsoever. I, I remember, I'm old enough now that I remember a time without smartphones. 
And I remember having space in my brain to commune with God. When I was in the grocery store, in the line, and I was waiting for a minute to get through the line, my mind would drift to the Lord. And I, I, I remember uh, what it was like to be bored, to run out of something to do, and to sit and stare at nothing and let my brain just do whatever my brain did. But it doesn't do that now. You know what it does? Immediately, if there is a millisecond of boredom, you know what I do? I reach right here into my back pocket and I pull this little device out and I fill up the space in my life. You see, information without connection to the living God leads to a cold and dead that can justify all kinds of sin. But when you stand in the presence of the living God, when you get on your face before him, I was back there in worship, and I'm singing, I'm lifting my hands to the Lord, and this thought comes to me of like my own sin and my own wickedness, and I'm I'm sitting there just going, God, sometimes I don't even feel like like I'm worthy to represent you, to, to preach to you. And the song comes on, right, that talks about the forgiveness of God. And my, I just found my heart, once again, rejoicing in the gospel and the goodness of God and who he is. When my heart is dry and I feel like I'm distant from the Lord in those moments where I actually turn to Him and God once again welcomes me with His grace. He brings me in with His forgiveness and my heart is once again rent and wrung out and I find myself going, oh God, of course I have to talk about You. Of course I have to proclaim who You are. See, religion without relationship is corrupting. So I want you to see the abuse of religious power. I also want you to see the abuse of civil power here. Festus knows what's right. He, he can see what's happening. He sees that Paul is being framed. He knows that the charges are baseless. He should turn him loose, but he's trying to do the political thing, and he's trying to make everybody happy. It's clear that Paul has done nothing wrong. Festus is bartering with Paul's life to garner favor with the people of Jerusalem. If Paul gets killed, problem solved, the people are happy. And Paul knows this. Paul knows that Festus doesn't care if he dies. Paul also understands the politics of this situation. Because Festus is taking over for a guy who couldn't rule an unruly people, Felix, his predecessor, got pulled back to Rome because riots were breaking out. And he, he was very heavy-handed. Remember, this guy was an, an ex-slave who was put into power. He didn't have training on how to rule. And, and as a result, he oppressed the people heavily. And eventually, charges were brought against him. And he was pulled back to Rome. Uh, fortunately, he was set free because his brother was a friend, a childhood friend of Caesar Nero. And so he escaped with his life, but he lost his rule and Festus has now come to replace him. So there is a very real, very present circumstance that tells Festus, if you don't get this right, you're headed back to Rome. And you better represent Rome well. He understands this power dynamic. So now Paul uses the law for the purpose for which it was created and he appeals 
to Caesar. So we see, we see the slyness of Festus. He's trying to massage the details to keep the politics running and to keep people happy and placate the crowds. And we see the wisdom of Paul in verses 10 through 12 as Paul knows what's happening. He sees him massaging the details. And now we see the predicament of Festus. Now Paul has appealed to Caesar and, and, and there are no charges to bring against him. So he's going to ship Paul to Rome. Paul will get his date in court before the emperor of the largest kingdom in the world. And when Paul stands before Caesar Nero, Festus, who will have written a letter, will say something like this. Uh, I don't know why he's here. I, I don't know what he's charged with. I couldn't figure it out myself. So I hope you do a better job. And Nero's going to say, who did we send over there? He's in a real pickle right now. So we see the predicament of, of Festus in verses 13 to 27. Now when some days had passed, uh, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. So quick snapshot of who these people are. Agrippa is the son of, of Herod Agrippa I. See, this is Herod Agrippa II. And he is, he's bringing Bernice, who is his sister and his wife, to this occasion. Now, originally, Agrippa was raised in the house of Claudius and, uh, and was educated there. He was shipped back to where his dad uh, had ruled. He, his dad actually died when, when uh, Agrippa was 17 years old. He stayed in Rome for a bit. But then he came over and, and, and basically took a portion of the power that his dad had in ruling over Judea. Uh, but he did so as a tetrarch, which was a shared type of, of monarchy. Uh, and then eventually he got promoted. He was given his own kingdom in the north in Syria and was able to, to have his own empire or, or, or his own little mini kingdom, if you will, in, uh, in the north of Israel. And so now Agrippa has been on the scene for a while. He knows the players. He knows who is present and who's who and what's what in Israel in a way that Festus does not. And Bernice, who is his sister wife, uh, is, is along for the ride as well. She also is uh, at this convocation as, as they come. Now, this is an opportunity for Festus then to pick his brain and get to know everything that he needs to know about ruling in Judea. And, and he needs to be able to spend some time with Agrippa to really get familiar with this new province that he's supposed to take over. So it makes sense that they would come down. Now, as they stay there, verse 14, many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a man left prisoner by Felix. Notice the blame shifting right away. He's like, this is not my fault. Felix left this guy behind. This is now a problem I have to deal with. Verse 15, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. And I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. 
When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I suppose. Rather, they, they had certain points of dispute with him uh, about their own religion and about cert, a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss as how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, Well, I'd like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. That word pomp in the Greek is a great one. It's fantasia. They came in with great fantasia. There was pomp and circumstance and robes and a, a great court and a great gathering and there's lots of, lots of people present. It, it's a big deal to have the king, Agrippa, come in, right, with his, with his incestuous relationship with his wife, Bernice, right? And they all come in and there's Portius Festus and, and Agrippa and Bernice and all of these uh, Roman officials all gathered together in one place. And uh, it, it goes on to say in verse 24, And Festus said, King Agrippa, all who are present with this, uh, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving of death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we've examined him, I might have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. <laughs> Notice this. This is so funny. He's like, I don't have anything to write about this guy. So I'm hoping that you will help me in that. Help me find something to write about this guy to the emperor. Now, this is actually kind of a brilliant move on Festus's part. Uh, they're, again, they're playing political chess. So by taking Agrippa and bringing him into that, he now shares the blame for whatever happens next, right? He no longer is the sole person responsible for it. Now he can kind of share that. Well, I, you know, we, we all kind of examined him. So, verse 1 of chapter 26. Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Now, Paul is about to give his defense here. And, and really, he's going to use this to share the gospel. This is very similar to passages that we have already read. And you might be saying to yourself, wow, uh, I think I've heard this story before. Uh, matter of fact, this is the fourth time you will have heard basically the same exact story. Now that might seem strange, but you have to remember, who is writing scripture? Who's authoring it? Yes, it's being written by the hand of men, but it's being directed by the Holy Spirit. And there is something that God wants us to acknowledge and to focus on here. There's something that we need to hear again and again, and again, and again. Paul is going to use this occasion 
to demonstrate the use of kingdom power. We've seen the abuse of religious power. We've seen the abuse of civil power. But now we're going to see the use of God's kingdom power as Paul talks about the gospel. Real simply, you're going to see this same format that you've already seen. Verses 1 through 11, this is who I was. This is who I was. Verses 12 through 18, this is how I encountered Christ. This is how I encountered Christ. Verses 19 to 23, this is how he changed me. This is what's different after having met him. In verses 24 to 29, what will you do in response to this reality? So we're going to see just that, that simple format laid out. This is how we all share about Jesus. Listen, you don't got to be a theologian. You just have to have encountered Christ. It's that simple. Paul is going to talk about what he knows of Jesus. Not about what he does not know, but what he knows about Jesus. So he stretches out his hand that tells us that Paul was educated in, um, in uh, rhetoric and that he was able to be a, a good orator. In verse 2, he says, I consider myself fortunate that this that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you're familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. And then he dives into his story. My, my, manner, of life from my, uh, my manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They all know how I grew up. They have known for a long time, if, if they're willing to testify to that, according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. What promise? Well, in Daniel chapter 12, when it talks about the resurrection. Ezekiel 37 Isaiah 53, 10, Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. All throughout the Old Testament, there is a constant promise that Messiah is coming, that the dead would be raised, that God would provide the forgiveness of sin. He says, I ha- I'm not believing anything different than what we have believed from the very beginning. I just see that God has fulfilled the promises that he made. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm on trial for. That's what's, what the big controversy is. He says, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I'm accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Now, you have to understand that even Greek mythology and Roman mythology believe that the gods did freaky things. Right? Things that didn't make sense, that defied natural laws. Even It's like, what is the big deal here? If I believe in God and that he made everything and, and he can do whatever he wants, what's the big deal in believing that God raised Jesus from the dead? There should be no controversy here. I myself was convinced, he says, that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. And I I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, these very same people that are accusing me, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote 
against them. Paul was complicit in the death of Christians. And I punished them often in the synagogues and I tried to make them blaspheme. I used my religious authority to try and get them to say something wrong so I could trap them. I tried to get them to blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul says, this, this is who I was. Right? This is my story. This, I, I have no other story. I only have the experience of what it was my reality. My reality was I hated these people. I hated what I am right now. And I, 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 wanted, I wanted to kill them. I was full of rage. I just wanted to see them absolutely destroyed. And, and, and I fought to make that happen. And then he says, this is how I encountered Christ. In, in this connection, verse 12, I journeyed to Damascus with authority and uh, commission of the chief priests. And at midday, okay, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that had shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard the voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goats. Why are you fighting against me? I keep trying to prod you in the right direction with the ox goat, but you keep fighting against it. And I said, well, who are you, Lord? Verse 15. And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand up on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. This is what God told me to do. You're going to go out, you're going to talk about me, and you're going to turn people from the, from the blindness, from the darkness they're living in, into the kingdom of, of God's Son, into the kingdom of light. They're, they're under right now the power of the devil. Now, I just want to pause... Just let's, let's double click on that moment right there. Unbelief is not just a passive state. You hear that? Unbelief is not just a passive state. You are under the power, the rule, the authority of the enemy of God. To, to be indecisive about God is to be decisive. That's the reality. And God says, that's not what I want. The reason he sent Paul is he wants to pull people out of the kingdom of darkness. He wants to save. But there are only two kingdoms. There is no Switzerland in the spiritual world. For or against. Those are the two options. Well, Paul says, God sent me, Jesus sent me. And I have not failed to declare throughout the world, in verse 20, but I've declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea and all the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. I've been telling everybody, 
Repent. Turn around. You were running away from God. You've been resisting God. you've You've been abstaining from a belief in God. But I'm just telling you, God is pursuing you. Turn around and run towards him. Repent. Change direction. Don't go away from God. Go towards him. And perform deeds in keeping with their repentance. Now, I just want to say this. You're not saved by your works, but if you're saved, you should look like it. There's things that happen in your heart. You can't can't be happy in sin. You can't be content in that place. And, and, And say, I love God, but I just reject his authority in my life. He can't tell me no. It doesn't work like that. We all have to come under the rule of King Jesus. Well, he says, I've called them to repent, to turn to God. So repent, believe, and live it out. That's it. Repent, believe, live it out. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and they tried to kill me. Now, in verses 12 through 18, we, Paul says, this is how I encountered Christ. And, and, and then in verses 19 through 23, he says, this is how Christ changed me. Not after I received this information, once I encountered Jesus and found out who he was and, and saw the reality of him, he sent me with a job to do. He sent, and, and, and I went and I started doing that job. And, and that's the reason I ended up in prison here. In verse 22, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer and that by being the first of many, you could say, the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. This was prophesied throughout the prophets again and again and again. Paul says, this is how God changed me. He he sent me with a message and I just started talking about it everywhere that I went. That's what I'm talking about even at this moment. That's what I talked about at the last trial and the trial before that and the trial before that. And then when I was in that other city, I talked about it there too. And the city before that, I talked about it there. And the city before that, I talked about it there too. And when I was in this household and when I was by that river and when I was with those people, I talked about it again and again and again and again. I just keep talking about what Jesus has done. Just keep talking about the gospel. Over and over and over. What do you want to say now, Paul? I just want to say it again. Let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about who I was, how I encountered Christ, and how he changed me. And now we're going to get to the real meat of this because Paul is going going to tighten the screws on this ruler. Check this out. In verse 24... And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Paul, he says, Paul, listen, you're, you're really smart. That's obvious. You're definitely educated. But I think maybe you have learned too much. It's making you nuts. Now, notice Paul's response. I love this. It's just, this is, this is like a classic John Wayne moment, Right? He's just like calm, cool, collected. And this is what he says, verse 25. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind. 
most excellent Festus. But I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? <laughs> Look at this. He's just like right a finger on his heart. Hey, King Agrippa, what do you think about this message? Do you believe what the prophets said? You know the scriptures. What do you think about what I'm saying? He says, I know. I know that you believe. Paul gets real personal right here. Now, there's a component to sharing the gospel with people that is always just about the details of what Jesus has done. And that, and that has power. That, that, it's amazing. But there also has to be the moment where we bridge that gap from talking about what Jesus has done saying, to where we, we, we move into somebody's heart and we begin to say, what do you think about this? Do you believe what I'm saying to you? You bring people to the crisis of making a choice about Jesus. What to do about him. Well, we're almost done here. Hang with me for just a second. And there's something very important I want to say. He says, I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you, would you persuade me to be a Christian? What are you, are you trying to convert me, Paul? <laughs> he starts to back up. And then... Paul said, whether a short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. And then in classic Jewish fashion, he says, except for these chains. <laughs> like you could take these chains off. That would be nice. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, who, and those who were sitting with him, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man has done nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Listen, the only thing that kept Agrippa from experiencing what Paul had experienced was inaction. That's it. Paul brought it right to him. What do you think? Do you believe the prophets? The only thing that kept... Agrippa from experiencing the power of the gospel and being filled with the Holy Spirit was a refusal to act on what he knew to be true. And the same is true today. In the end, Festus doesn't have anything else to write to Nero. His only accusation is that he believes the gospel. That's the only thing he can say about Paul. And Paul has given no offense to the government. No offense to the rulers in Jerusalem. Even Festus, Agrippa, and Bernice all agree together. Paul's only crime is talking about Jesus. Now, Paul has a ticket to Rome. He's, he's going to be on his way to Rome very soon. There he'll stand trial before the highest authority in the world. And once again, what is he going to say in that place? I think the rest of Acts gives us a clue. He's going to talk about Jesus. You just can't shut this guy up. He's going to keep talking about Jesus again and again and again and again. 
Paul would write to the church in Rome in anticipation of being able to go there. He says, I am not ashamed of the power. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Listen. Paul believed what he preached because he'd really encountered Christ. Our job is not to say new things, to be creative, to come up with some new way of presenting the gospel and trying to, trying to find some creative edge. Listen, there's room for creativity in the kingdom of God, but that's not the goal. The goal is not to say new things, it's to say true things. It's to proclaim the same gospel that has always been the gospel, that has always been the power of God unto salvation. That is our goal. Paul knew that, and he stayed the course. Final thought. Dallas Willard said one time in an interview that we must try to avoid using guilt in the life of a Christian as a motivator to share the gospel. He said, we have no problem sharing the things that we love and, we're, and, and are confident will bless another. The gospel is shared freely from those that encounter Christ deeply. When Jesus becomes so real to you that you see him as the highest good in your life, you will share with ease. Here, here's what he's saying. Listen, a lot of times, and I've done it. I'm, I'm just going to tell you right now, guilty as charged. I've, I've used guilt. Sometimes like, you know, we, we talk about our favorite sports teams. Like, why can't we talk about Jesus, right? We, like, I've done that kind of thing. But can I just say, I, I know why we don't talk about Jesus. It, it's oftentimes because our encounters with Jesus are not deep. You, you see, Paul had deep encounters with Jesus, Jesus was not just a one-time encounter a long time ago, a memory that he had, where he was like, oh, I remember that one time I had a really emotional response to a bright light, and, and that was it. No, all along the way, Jesus had been leading Paul. All along the way, God had been meeting Paul and providing for Paul and speaking to Paul and saving people in front of Paul and doing miracles through Paul. Paul had encounter after encounter after encounter all along his Christian experience. And so when Paul talks about Jesus, he talks about Jesus as the friend who has been alongside of him along the way. Jesus was Paul's friend and king, and Paul continued to encounter Jesus again and again throughout the course of his life. Folks, listen. When we encounter Jesus, and I'm not just talking about here in the sanctuary, when our hands are lifted up in praise. I mean, that's a piece of it. I'm talking about when you're in your car, right? And the sun's just coming up, it's early in the morning, and, and the sky just lights on fire. You know what I'm talking about? Those beautiful. And you just find yourself breaking out in spontaneous praise. You find yourself singing out at the top of your lungs in the privacy of your car with nobody else able to hear you. Singing how great thou art or whatever your favorite hymn is. Those moments of worship where you encounter Jesus. It's, it's the moment, guys, when you are in your bedroom and everybody else is gone in the house. And, 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 and you're thinking about an issue. You're talking to the Lord about an issue. And, and just as an act of worship, you lay down and you prostrate yourself 
face down on the floor in your bedroom and you begin to call out to God. You say to him, God, I need you to bring your will to bear in this situation. It's those moments in morning devotion when you open up the word and that perfect scripture comes to the forefront and you realize that in the sea of 7 billion people on the planet, God hears your voice and speaks to your heart. It's those moments of closeness and intimacy where you get a taste of the divine and the reality of the living Christ is brought to the forefront of your your life once again. Listen, this last week, I, I found a food truck. I know that seems like a, a change, but I'm going somewhere. It's called the Fat Kid Food Company. And they had a General Tso's chicken burrito that I'm not kidding you, was made by divine creatures. Now, normally, at least once a day or once a week, I try to act like I'm healthy. But I, I, I bit into this thing. I'm like, this is so good. This is amazing. I, I am going to have to tell people about this. I, I, matter of fact, anybody that will listen, I'm just going to tell you, go to the Fat Kid Food Company truck and get yourself a sandwich or a burrito from there it will change your life. You may actually be surrounded by a bright light and have Jesus encounter you in that very moment. It was pretty close to that for me. Now, here's... Anytime I go anywhere that I have an, an amazing experience, you know what I do? I just talk about it. I can't help it. It's the coolest thing that's happened in my life in the last 24 hours. I got to talk about it. I got to tell my friends, people that I want to have that experience too, people that I care about. And I'm like, hey, you should use this contractor. He was awesome. Or this mechanic, and this is really good. Or, or this restaurant and that experience. You should go do these things. It was so awesome. And I can't help but talk about it. But guys, the reason so often that evangelism comes so hard is because our encounters with Christ grow fewer and far between. If I could just encourage you in anything, maybe if your life has grown cold, if your heart feels distant, it's time to turn off the phone, not tune into Netflix and get on your face before Jesus in the privacy of your bedroom and pour your heart out to the Lord once again and encounter the living Christ. Amen? Mitch and the gang is going to come up and close us out with one last song. I'm going to pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Jesus, I'm so glad for your grace. I'm so thankful, God, that you are not merely an idea or a philosophy that we follow. But you are indeed 
the living God, that you have sent your Holy Spirit to live in us, that you come and you meet us in season after season and time after time, God, in those moments where we lift our hands to you in worship in the sanctuary, those are blessed reminders, but also, God, in the moments when nobody sees. When we stack rocks in the yard and build an altar to you. When, we, when we're up on the mountainside and overwhelmed by the beauty of your creation and your power and your creativity and the glory of who you are. When, when we are driving down the road and we see that sunset, God, you are present in those moments. And when we encounter you and we talk to you and share our hearts with you, Lord, it is the best thing in our lives. Thank you that you do not merely save us, but that you sustain us, that you draw close to us and you love us. So God, draw near to us as we draw near to you. In Jesus' name, amen.